Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed is the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 250 is recorded live July 30th, 2015. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the west side of the great state of Michigan where we have shipwrecks all over. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well and enjoying the warmth. And then in spirit, we have Jim Schultz. He wasn't able to hang on for the call, but we thank him for giving us a try tonight. And we'll talk with him next week. But it, we've had some pretty decent weather, and I want to apologize to everybody who who tuned in last week expecting a whole show and only got a little bit. I had a personal emergency go on just as we were recording. Mac, you missed that fun. Uh, my son passes a note to me as I'm recording. I'm like, what the heck? And my wife's car had died. So, you know, there was that moment where I you know, I was thinking, yeah, do I, the show must go on or do you go and save your wife? So I went and <laughs> jump-started her car and got her home. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's all those things like life after death. Yes. If you don't, you're going to wish you did. <laughs> yeah, it would have been a bad situation. And, and with the magic of editing, you wouldn't have known. But by the time I got back, the, I, I couldn't. So we did. And let me know how you like it. You can contact us either in the contact form at the www.scubobsessed.com website contact. Or you can email us at the show at scubobsessed. Dot com and let us know if you like that or we did some rebroadcast we may maybe we'll do that once every couple months i've got another in fact next week we may not be recording because i have to travel for work i'm trying to decide now if i want to brave the hotel room internet or not but what we did is we we did the first half of the show and then i put together episode one and i actually listened to the whole thing again and we've come a long way from there in some aspects we're really not that much different some of the memes that we have on the show have continued all the way from episode one. Well, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. The first article we have is five lobster divers were rescued uh, by the Martin County Coast. As I said, by? It's off Martin County Coast. And what it appears to have happened is they broke a uh, shackle on their anchor and the boat just drifted away. While they were down, everybody on the boat was lobster diving. They they go to head up and there's no boat. They said, luckily, a passing helicopter spotted the divers. And in the article, they're saying the divers neglected, neglected to use a dive flak. And I'm thinking that the, the, if they do like what we do, is the boat is the dive flag. We've got an antenna. We fly a dive flag and sometimes an alpha, and that's floating up there. And then you don't carry a, a dive flag because we're not doing a drift dive. Usually we're to a mooring or to an anchor. And you stay within 100 feet of the boat, typically, and that's your dive flag. But we have been known to use dive flags out there on the wreck, too, though. Yeah. Well, if the visibility is bad, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about visibility when we get to last week's dives. Uh, if the visibility is bad, I certainly recommend it. Or if it's, you know, depending on the wreck, it, it's not a bad idea. Well, if you got a guy with a rebreather, he's going to be the last one down. It's really nice to know where he's at. 
the guy with the rebreather is the guy who's not going to use a tie flag. <laughs> I, I hear you. It would be nice. It would be nice. I mean, you can't even look for the bubble to say where he's at and how long he's going to be this time. Yeah, we're going to need to. Uh, I'm I'm hoping that we get selected for that was it, a quiz program so they give us a unit to try out because that'd be a perfect one would be just you know they got where's waldo it's where's bob those rebreather divers you have no idea where they're at but they came up and they were okay one one of the divers was hospitalized uh but appears to be doing okay and then not quite well, scuba dive. it goes a lot to say keep somebody on the boat it does well it, and that's a perfect example the you know, there's times we don't put anybody in the boat because what we tend to do is look and say we don't have high waves. There's not a strong current. There's not strong wind. So we have a high level of confidence the boat's not going to go anywhere. And then we go, everybody goes down. But it could you could easily have something like that. You know, if a shackle breaks, even with no waves, that boat can be a mile away by the time you get up. Right. That's the other aspect that it would be really nice to have a good recall system because if you have to leave, it would be nice to be able to have, you know, communication with somebody down below. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is something that we need to work on. I have, you know, we've, we've done the revving the engine thing and I've also, some people with the metal sided boats can do the banging with a dive weight. And I now have some mini explosives to toss over to do the boom. That will... I don't know if that will get me up or scare me away. Well, if you anticipate that if you hear the boom, you might want to come up and find out what's going on. Yeah. I'm anxious to try that and see how well that works for distance. Okay. Now I'm fighting with this next website. It's just spinning, spinning, spinning. You know, I, I have to say, here, here's, we'll have to have a segment. Darren's complaint about technology. Yeah, and he's uh, and his business is what? <laughs> That's his business. Yeah, you wouldn't know that sometimes. You're no, talking about the point seven seventy seven. Yeah, the Boeing seven 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 that disappeared in March twenty fourteen. They think they have actually found it. And this it looks like today was it today or yesterday? Were they? No, I thought it was today. I, I saw that on TV. Yeah, hmm. I think Chrome has gone to hell. Is what it happened has happened. Are you, are you using Chrome? Well, what I do because right now I'm on a Mac. Uh huh. I've got one of everything, and on the Mac. Safari is kind of iffy, and I use Chrome, but Chrome is slowly beginning worse and worse and worse. It's running into the same disease that Microsoft had with the with its browser, which it's fixed with 10, which is that they just oh. keep adding crap onto the top of it till it's too big and bloated. Okay. But the uh, they're, they're saying U.S. officials, debris and photo belongs to Boeing 777. Now, unfortunately, the photo they're showing in the article is not the same photo. Because do you see something, Mac? Uh, the one I've got here shows me an anchor on the, on the yes. bottom. Of the floor. That is not the photo that so they're I'm talking about in debris. <laughs> yes. Yeah. A uh, uh, late 18th uh, or ni- 18 or 19th century anchor is not in the Boeing not- 777 right. debris field. So that's a stock photo, and this was early in the year where Australia was complaining about one of the survey companies. They were, you know, it's it's kind of the frustration that happens when you can't find something you think you know where it will be is, you know, are they incompetent and they went over it. But it's a big ocean out there, and uh, U.S. safety investigators say they have a high degree of confidence that aircraft degree shown in the photo that is in the Indian Ocean is from the wing components of a Boeing 777. So, assuming there's not another 777 missing that could be there. Yeah, of course there's not. Do, of course, if you want to do conspiracy theory, you know, you've had enough time, you can plan a fake wing. <laughs> True, but 
I'm sure they'll be able to determine if that is from the 777. I also thought it was significant about the luggage they found. Or did you see that part? No, I haven't gotten that far. Did they, so they found some luggage? Yeah, I saw it was on the news tonight. I watched it. And they were showing here as part of a suitcase. Now, a wing and a suitcase no. starts adding more validity oh. to this. Yeah. Well, and plus a lot. I'm sure that all the parts are stamped with serial numbers so that when it comes time to put things together, they know where and what and how. But I just thought it was a little funny that they used a shipwreck photo for the airplane wreck. Yeah. Yeah, I've just got a different uh, site, STIL, today. Mm-hmm. And it's got a, it's got the picture I saw on the news. That's a significant part. And like they were saying that I saw, they uh, just looking at it would be able to tell them if it was ripped off, blown off. Oh, certainly. That kind of stuff. Yeah. Just from the condition of the part that, that washed ashore. Yeah, because it flew for quite a while without contact. Well, yeah, where this was at, if you look at the places we were looking uh-huh. off of Australia, well, if you looked at on the map where they said Australia, go way left, you're getting near this island. And that's way off the path. It's, you know, if you went from A to B, you'd see the path. This is off over to the right in C. So this is not where they would have normally been flying. Right, and not anywhere near where they looked. Oh, really? Yes, not anywhere where they looked. That's what's significant about that and the suitcase parts. Yeah. So it really sounds positive that they may be able to find a better area to go look for it now. Well, then we have something else that was found. A scuba diver returns a lost iPhone months after it fell to the ocean floor. Back in March in the Pacific Ocean, uh, an individual lost his phone. Uh, He used the feature of the iPhone to look for the missing phone and gave up after a couple weeks. Uh, It was over in Monterey Bay. He had purchased a waterproof bag just for the trip, took photos with his case, Hanging around his neck, at some point he fell in the water, panicked, got his foot caught in some seaweed. He made it back in the boat, only to fall out again. This is when the phone slipped away. I pulled myself back onto the boat. I heard something snap and thought it was my life vest. He realized later that it was his iPhone that went into the water. He put the phone in lost mode and after a week gave up. And then in May, he gets a notification on his phone that it's been turned on. It turns out the person who found my phone tried to put their number, but I declined through my notification of my new iPhone, which was the replacement, and contacted the person he writes, adding that at first he probably came off as a jerk because he wanted his phone back and someone else had it, but the finder arranged to meet him and handed over. When he got to the meeting spot, he found his phone was in the same waterproof bag. It worked perfectly fine with no water damage. The people who found the phone was a couple who had been in Monterey Bay going kayaking and scuba diving. He says, they found the phone on the bottom of the ocean near a rock, still in its pouch. I was baffled. I had no words to explain my feelings. I didn't know what to say or do. I couldn't have thanked them enough. So it shows that, because uh, uh, you look at that bag, you don't think that's going to be that waterproof. No, but you want to, that's a good advertisement for the type of bag that was. Yeah, because it's, it's one of those, if you if it's a, it's a vinyl bag, it's got a clear window so that you can see the phone through it. And I think you can actually use the phone while it's in the bag. And it's got a plastic clip at the top which kind of presses and seals it. So it's a little bit like a dry bag with a plastic clip. And I don't think they're too terribly expensive. How long was it down? How long was it in the water? Did they really say? March to May at the longest. It didn't say how long the people had the phone, but it sounds like uh, he dropped it in March. So probably was at least two or three months, two months. Yeah, because he said they called him and he did, and I, I didn't get the time, you know, the month they called him. Yeah, it was in May. Okay. Yeah, he says, uh, put on a, back in March, uh, early May, he gets a notification that the phone had been turned back on. It's still amazing how you can drop something, ring or otherwise, and now find the owners. Oh, 
with with social media, yeah, you could you'd have had to spend a ridiculous amount of money and stuff like this. Yeah, but the only way you could do it would be as if you had a central registry and everybody turned stuff into a lost and found. And I mean, heck, we still lose luggage for airports. And it's been 50 years since Christ the Deep statue off Key Largo has been in the water. Uh, Christ the statue, let's see, where's that located? That's, uh, they say? I know well, it's just off of Key Largo. It didn't Key say Largo. Yeah, it says about 20 feet of water below the water surface. So 50 years. Well, Sounded they, like a spooky old guy, didn't it? Yeah. Were they doing much like that 50 years ago where you're sinking objects to dive on? Yes. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> cool. So we need to I can't pronounce the guy's name, but 83-year-old Korean War veteran first learned of the statue on a wine-tasting trip to Italy 54 years ago. So it's been down there for a while. Yes. Spaterio. Yeah. And they said he was, what, instrumental in orchestrating the statue's move from Genoa, Italy to Chicago to its final resting spot. So it was significant to him because he had a hand in putting it there. Yeah, we we uh, covered that. Oh, gosh, it's probably been, maybe it was last year at this time, earlier in the year. Mm-hmm. And they talked about the fundraising and having it shipped and how he discovered the statue. So it'd be an interesting story. Well, I thought I, the part I liked here is one, he's blind, blind, which is significant. And it said he wore special gloves to touch the statue, which is covered with fire coral and can cause stinging and burning. And I'm looking at the picture and it's like, special gloves sound like a good idea. Yeah. I know his C&I diver doesn't have gloves on. Oh, do they show him in the photo you're seeing? Yeah, he's also dive heart. Okay. Peter Murray, the volunteer with Dive Heart, is behind him. Yeah. Now, did he, did has he lost his sight all this time, or is it just recently, do they say? Well, it must have been recently, because if he was in the Korean War, he had vision then. Yeah. Uh, he's 83, and I'm seeing if it had any, if it said when he lost his vision. He started diving in the early days in 56. Yeah, he began diving in 56. He'd come back from Korea, served in the Army as a supply si- sergeant, and worked in his family's pizza place in Chicago. Uh, I don't see any reference to when he lost his vision, though. Yeah. The yeah, statue finally made it to its ocean floor on August 25th, 1965. He used his con- connections with his father's steamship line to get the statue brought to Chicago. Uh, then with the Illinois National Guard, he got the statue transported on a Navy reserve plane toward Lando. So sometimes having some connections doesn't isn't so bad all the time it doesn't isn't so bad but that, that's accolades to him being 83 blind and still diving and still wanting to dive yes go down there and appreciate it, it. stop him yeah and braveheart too though for helping well, out and doing that yeah he said returning to the statue was wonderful says this was his second dive of statue his first dive took place in 2013 so he got the statue down there he just had never dove on it wow and then an honorary artificial reef off the North Carolina coast has been delayed. The sinking of a ship to honor, uh, do they say what his name is? Uh, Jim Fra- Francone, uh has been delayed until this fall. The uh, North Carolina Div- Division of Marine Fisheries had hoped to sink a ship named after him this month on the one-year anniversary of his death from leukemia at age 54. Francicone uh, led the state program that uses old bridge, discarded concrete piers, and scuttled ships to create places along the coast to attract fish and marine life. But the ship the state had planned to acquire, a 180-foot Manhattan fishing trawler, is now no longer available, the division announced last Thursday. The state must find another one and arranged to have it thoroughly cleaned and prepared for sinking. The fundraising for the project is complete. This according to Robert 
Perfrey, owner of Olympic Dive Center in Moorhead City and one of the leaders of the effort. The project is expected to cost $120,000, with about 70000 of it coming from the state scuba diving license plate fund. Ships like the one the state plans to sink are popular divers and fishermen alike because they can sit high off the bottom, creating places to explore and a more vertical habitat for marine life. Other sources of money for the project include a $10,000 grant from a conservation fund administered by the Division of Marine and Fisheries, $10,000 from the Big Rock Marlin Tournament, $20,000 from an anonymous donor, $12,000 in numerous small donations through GoFundMe.com account, I think we're done, he said. As soon as we know which vessel we're sinking, then we'll proceed on. There are 50 designated artificial reef sites in North Carolina, 42 off the coast, 8 off Palamaco Sound, and its tributaries. Some are littered with concrete objects designed and built to act as what are known as patch reefs, but many are more made of concrete, culverts, roadbeds, bridges, and ships. The ship they plan on sinking will be scuttled on Howard Chapin Reef, about 12 miles from the Buford Inlet. It will lie near the wrecks of the U.S. Indria, a 330-foot landing craft repair ship sunk in the reef in 1992. Wow, they got a ton of them down there. Yeah. Now, I expect you will have a comment on this next one. You skipped one before, though, didn't you? Did I skip one? Local scuba diving club cleans children's oh. bike, TV, and alcohol bottles. From- With the internet being so crappy sometimes, yeah. Go to what loads? So let's see. And, of course, now it won't. Well, it's our over-the-seas buddies. Okay. Go back. It's in the U.K. Right. I will say the British Subaquatic Club is the big thing in Europe, and they do everything. I I like the organization. I mean, I know people have to make money and do... And their licensing is really unique. Yeah. Well, they seem to have a way of keeping people engaged and going, and maybe it's just an optimistic view from here. But they seem to have a lot stickier membership than what They seem to keep the older guys who did it forever in it, but they still got new ones coming up. I'm looking at the one picture here. Must be 20 or so people. And it's from ours, the white hairs, the no hairs, down to some young ones. And I think the youngest is a young lady. Actually, two young ladies. Yeah. So they've they've got a they, I mean they they still still does look a little weighted towards the aged or experienced as we should say, but they they do seem to get uh, more of a cross section. And that's a heck of a selection. I was just counting the number of garbage bags that are full. That's a decent amount for that crowd. Yeah. So on Sunday, July twenty sixth, the blue at the Blue Lagoon Nature Reserve, twenty divers volunteered to remove unwanted rubbish and trash. From the water around the pier, which is frequently used by Milton Keys, uh, Keens Subaquatic, MKSAC, as an entry point for scuba diving. Members from the local British Subaquatic Club scuba diving clubs also showed their support for the Blue Lagoon cleanup, including members from the Bedford Scuba Aquatic Club, the Stowe Scuba Aquatic Club near Buckingham. MKSAC members had noticed significant increase in the amount of litter in Blue Lagoon since the big heat wave we experienced a few weeks ago. So they're saying this is just recent trash? That's sad. Total haul consisted of 15 black sacks of rubbish as well as a child strike, an old cathode ray tube television set of oars, child's dinghy, thick gauge rope, and remnants of what appeared to be a frame for an old wooden sign. Many disposable barbecues were found as well as alcoholic drink cans, bottles, plastic items, small bottle tops which they noted can uh, be swallowed by visiting birds and other wildlife. Large fishing lures and was hooked was also recorded. 
So it's a shame that so many people don't take rubbish home when they leave and simply throw it in a lake, polluting it for wildlife. The public who come to walk around the lake and scuba divers use Blue Lagoon on Wednesday evenings in summer and every Sunday morning throughout the year. The rubbish collection was arranged by Milton Keys Council, and after all scuba diving, de-kitted MKSAC held a barbecue to celebrate everyone's efforts. They said, don't worry, they took the rubbish with them. You can understand trash and bottles and stuff, because if there is no trash can up there, people will have a tendency to do that. But when you like the TV right there in the foreground, that was deliberately brought there and dumped. Yeah, somebody just went out and threw it. Either they didn't want to... And I don't know in the UK how their trash system is. Do they have pickup? Do you have to pay a service? But they did a heck of a job there. Yeah. Uh, And it's, it's easy for stuff to find its way in the water. If you look at... Silver Beach after the 4th of July. Oh, that made the news again. Oh, that You can fill a dumpster up with that. I, I used to go metal detecting there the, the following day, the morning. If you're not there at 5 o'clock, you're late. But <laughs> uh, I can make a collection of chairs, beach towels, sheets, blankets. And that which I don't collect is dirty diapers, believe it or not. It's like, why would you change a kid's diaper and not put it in a trash and leave it. Oh, I, I can tell you so many stories about diapers. I, well, worked, I worked retail. There's not a place that people won't shove a dirty diaper. Well, the worst thing I think out there, other than the diapers, is sparklers, because all the kids have sparklers. Oh. But where do they put that darn very sharp and thin piece of metal? In the sand. Or they stick it in the sand, not realizing when somebody comes walking in there a couple of days later, the pointy ends up, and that could be you again, because, hey... Kids run in the sand. Well, and these these beaches, which are very well populated and maintained, uh, they'll rake the beach. They have an automated rake, and yeah. I think they even have a roller that they run, like a drag and a roller. They have a. I think somebody told me that they bought the roller, and it's got plates that you can put advertising in. So yeah, I've not s- noticed them using the roller, but uh, the rake they use all the time. But it will not pick up. Uh, it'll pick up big objects, but uh, the sparkler wire. It goes right on through. Yeah, it can't pick it up. No. You'd have to. We're metal detecting. We we take anything metal we pick up, and uh, it's amazing how many of those sparklers I pick up. So so really the metal detectors, you're doing a community service. Yes, we are. Yeah. Occasionally we can get paid if we find something good. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, it's the the discovery. Well, here we got Blackbeard's Law, which is what they're calling it, would clarify control of media rights. To shipwreck. This is out of Raleigh. Is that North South Carolina? North Carolina. North Carolina. Raleigh, North Carolina. Legislation is pending at the state Senate. Could be called Blackbeard's Law because it appears to be inspired by ongoing legal battles on the famous pirates' three uh, hundred year old shipwreck off North Carolina coast. The bill includes a passage to clarify that photos and video recordings of derelict vessels or shipwrecks are public refer- records when in the custody of the North Carolina agencies. The bill says these materials are to be shared with the public without limitation or alter- alteration. The dissemination of photos and videos of the wreck has been the main point of contention since 2013 between the North Carolina Department of Cultural Resources and Intersol Inc. of Florida. Intersol found the wreck of Blackbeard's Queen Anne Revenge in 1996, about a mile off the Atlantic Beach. A spokeswoman for the Department of Cultural Resources couldn't be reached on Tuesday to say why the agency requested the legislation. Legislation is part of a larger bill covering several matters requested by the agency. A passage it passed the Senate on Monday evening with a vote of 48 to 1 is scheduled for another vote next week. Intersol's fought with the state agency since 2013 over the contract 
and filed a lawsuit on Monday. The contract says Intersol and the state can jointly make commercial projects using photos and videos of the ship and artifacts recovered from it. The contract says third parties must abide by Intersol's terms if they want to make photos or videos. Wrecks such as the Queen Anne's Revenge belong to the state. Treasure seekers obtain permits to look for them and normally arrange to split the treasure with the state. But Blackbeard's ship was stripped of its treasure shortly after it ran aground in 1718, so instead Intersol negotiated with the state to control media rights to the wreck. Intersol said the publications of photos and videos of the wreck and artifacts on Facebook, other places online, and the U.S. Department of Defense website violated the contract. Even though these photos and videos weren't made by Intersol, the company says the contract controls them. If the state publishes photos or video, gives them to the public, and allows third parties to make their own, the company says the images and videos are supposed to be altered with a time code plus a logo and watermark to limit their commercial value. Restrictions are intended to allow Intersol and its designated video company, Nautilus Productions of Fayetteville, to profit from unadulterated video and photos of the wreck. Fayetteville Observer Photograph photographer Cindy Burham and her husband Rick Allen own Nautilus uh, Productions. Nautilus is not party in the lawsuit. Intersol says the lawsuit is due more to $8 million in damage for several hours of video and 2,080 photos it says are published in violation of the contract. If the bill becomes law, state agencies will be prohibited from making contracts that limit how photos and videos and other documentary materials from shipwrecks are shared to the public. The legislation would not retroactively apply to the contract Intersol already has, said lawyer Neil Yarborough of Fayetteville. Yarborough has often successfully sued the state. Still, Intersol sees the bill as a threat. Intersol's opinion is a blatant attempt to undercut both our current agreement of our lawsuit. Well, my thought is that it shouldn't be limited to this. It should be anything the state does is the property of the people, and the state can't limit the use of those photos and videos. I would say that, too, because it's like a wreck is a wreck, and we know ain't much to it, really, seriously. So if they agreed, though, like they do, like if you're in a salvage wreck you, 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 uh, or treasure, you make some kind of monetary, I'll get to keep 50%, I give the state 50 That makes sense. But I'm not sure how you can say video and pictures because the state owns the wreck anyway. The state can do what they want pictorially. You know what I right. mean? It, to me, it seems that way. Yeah, but it's sort of funny. Let, I'll go to another example. If I'm up in Wisconsin taking pictures of the Ren Fair, which I've done, I can use the photos any which way I want to. If you go to the Michigan State or the Michigan Ren Fair, if you use any photo for commercial purposes, you have to have it approved through the corporation that runs the Ren Fair. If you go there with a lens that's over six inches long, you have to register that as you enter the park. Now, I understand that because if you take a picture of a person against a tree, nothing. But if you were to take pictures of the backdrops and stuff that is part of the property of the park, the Ren Fair, then I can see how you cannot use that in a commercial aspect because it's somebody else's property. Well, and this plays off with the what? Uh, oh God, they had a, a recording artist who went and fought with Apple. Was it Katy Perry or one of those? Sound like an old guy now, but uh, she was complaining with what Apple's deal was, which is during the three three months of the free trial mm-hmm. for the Apple Music. Apple wasn't going to pay any artists, and she's like, "No, I'm pulling all my my content off because." You owe me for that. It's not my fault you're going to give it away for free for three months. I should still get paid. So she was able to get Apple to reverse the ruling and then end up paying everybody during the three months. Of course, Apple has, what, $40 billion or so in the bank. Uh, But then somebody pointed out that if you're a photographer 
to get into a Katy Perry company, you have to sign away the rights to your photos. They can only be used for the engagement, which is the purpose of why you're there. They have the right to approve, and they can use any of the photos they want in any manner. But you're only allowed to use them in one publication immediately following the, the concert. So the, the authors or the photographers were bitching going, you know what? We can't make any money off this. You know, that's where that's, you know, we're getting paid, what, a hundred and some bucks by a newspaper to go and take photos of the concert. You know, we, we need to be able to have rights to the photos longer than that. So it's the same thing. We're, we're in this time with intellectual rights and we really need laws that open this up with all the sharing that's going on. Uh, it has to be weighed towards that. You know, it's it's you want to protect the rights of the content creators and even the you know image owners. You know, the like in the cases you talked about the rent fair. You know, they they painted backgrounds, they've made sets, and you're using that material to profit or gain from. Uh, but it needs to be clear because it's, it's stuff's being taken ad- advantage of. Now it sounds like in the rent fair they're not because if I take my my smartphone out, snap a few pictures, and share it saying I was here. That's different than if I go and make a 58-page photo book and then sell it. Absolutely. But on one side, they don't care because that's publicity for them if you do share it. And on the other side, I mean, in Michigan, I'm not exactly sure why that is because most people aren't going to make a lot of money off of that anyway. No, but they share it through the Facebook and say, hey, look where I went. You ought to go there. It's a lot of fun type thing. Well, I think there are people who do that almost for a living and i I, some of the research is how these comic-con events are because they're much bigger and they they probably run into similar things where you've got everybody dressed up as in many cases copyrighted characters when you you dress up as a stormtrooper i mean the original image is you know skywalker now disney well that's like halloween are you going to go out there and arrest all those kids well half of them they they paid to, to wear your likeness i mean you got paid to begin with yeah, that's that's the thing is everybody's happy when they're making money and unhappy when they're not. And then they pass laws thinking they're not making money. I mean, if you look at the heyday of when the recording industry made the most money, it was when they were being the copied the most. Well, we're not going to solve it here, but uh, I think it was pretty. I don't think the state agency should be entering in these exclusive license agreements, especially in something that they technically already own. So yeah, I, can, I thought it was odd that they do that, give that a, you know, the photo aspect away. Yeah. Well, and the tough thing when you're dealing with uh, political organizations is that you have what happens when administration changes. So maybe you have one group, and that may be what was going on here. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to hear from those who are out in the audience land who might have some experience with this, pros yeah. or cons. I'd yeah. be interested. Just as a side note to us, yeah. I'm curious. Also, I want to know where they came up with $8 million. They think they're going to get $8 million in publicity. I think they, seven hours. I think they made absolutely nothing on it, and they're just trying to find a way why they, why they didn't. And then in Michigan City, Indiana Dune State Park uh, did a program talking about Beneath the Waves. That was at the uh, Barker Mansion a little over a week ago on Wednesday. Whenever people ask people to name ships that wrecked, the average number is five. Most of the names he hears are the Titanic, the Edmonds, Fitzgerald, and they're not even in Lake Michigan. He said that more than 5,000 ships wrecked in Lake Michigan and more than 200 wrecked in the Indian Indiana waters. And I'm going to say he's a little low. I think it's closer to 10,000 myself. Uh, Indiana, maybe not. Well, Indiana is saying that's 200, and I, I can't say because that's such a little sliver of Lake Michigan proportionally. Uh, yeah, for but, them, that's why I said 200 in Indiana. But off of Michigan City, Indiana alone, 
there's at least 80. Yeah, yeah. And he was talking about a few of them, the J.D. Marshall, which is, I have not dove on that one. Have you done the J.D. Marshall? Yeah, years ago. Yeah, we don't even have the numbers to it. I've tried to get it a few times. And the David Dowles, that's in the same area. David that Dowles. That used to be a mainstay, five-masted schooner. And the last one, though, you have, the one right under that. The the Muskegon. Yep, you have dove that one. Yep, that one's a good one. You know, even a spot where there's this little tiny swim-through, if you're small enough, right through the boiler. And the props, the twin props are really great. Yeah, that's a nice Photoshop, 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 if you can get there early in the season. It's better early in the season before things have gotten roughed up. Its visibility is rarely good. I think the best I've seen there is maybe eight feet. So the mansion director, Jessica Rosier, said that was that the program, the first ever partnership with Indiana Dune State Park, was timed to coincide with the SS Eastland Memorial on Saturday. And so uh, the SS Eastland, that's had its 100th anniversary of the wreck. Yeah. You're familiar with the Eastland, right? Yeah, the Eastland is the one that was in Chicago that uh, turned over at the dock. Right. It's technically not even on the waterway other than it was at the dock anchored and turned turtle. Yep, just turned over. It was it had sold many times, and the conspiracy is the reason it sold so much is because it was top-heavy. So and it was. And it was an engineering flaw. It was the GE General Electric Company. It was a picnic. They had chartered a couple boats, and I believe they were headed to Michigan City. That is correct. At the time. And uh, a lot of people on that boat, uh, they, they somebody said, hey, take a look at this as the story goes. Everybody went to take a look at whatever it was, and the boat rolled over and went turtle. And it was, med- it was probably one of the first shipwrecks or that to have an extensive media coverage because it happened where it did. Many uh, film reels were shot, but there's not many that uh, survived. So there was a recently another film reel that just came to light in the last month. And if you look online, you can see some of the, the footage. Also earlier in the year, there was something from the Netherlands where they had uh, foreign locations in their libraries had had, was it Netherlands or maybe it was uh, Scandinavia, but they'd had some some footage of the Eastland disaster. Um, but there's one uh, uh, engine that my dad works on, and he likes to point out that probably most of the people who worked on that engine, significant number of them died in that accident. The well, Eastland. people don't realize 844 people drowned in that accident. Yeah. I mean, you're getting up there to, to, the, to the Titanic numbers, you know? Yeah. And that, that's... On a flat, calm day on a pier. Yep. Or and, not. And part of it was a dress code. People wore a lot of heavy clothes. Many people didn't know how to swim. And there was some rumor that the river was a little bit polluted. And you may not have, uh, some people may not have done real well in the water. Yeah. And the nice, not nice, the other continuing saga, though, is after it was salvaged, restorated, uh, the Navy bought it and turned it into a gunboat named the USS Wilmette. And the significant part of the USS Wilmette, she was still top-heavy, is that she was the one that sank the German U-boat, the UC-97, or the U-97, which is the one, meaning the only U-boat we have sunk in the Great Lakes. Ah, everything's all connected. Yes. But if you've not been to the Eastland site, Google it, you'll find it quite, quite interesting. The pictures are quite tragic, and it's like, you always think, this could have happened to me. I, I said General Electric, it's Western Electric. Is it Western Electric? Why am I thinking it was General Electric? Yeah, nearly 2,000 employees for the Western Electric and a company picnic. 
Yeah. So tickets were a mere dollar to get them from Michigan City for the day of picnicking and enjoyment, and instead it ended with a uh, tragedy. And this is uh, by uh, MSRA member uh, Valerie Van Heest. It was a rainy day, so most passengers headed below deck to escape the elements. Around 7.15 a.m., the boat finished boarding and prepared to set sail, and it capsized, filled with water just a few feet from the dock. Oh, and she is talking about the uh, the person who found the film. It was a, She says this was a Northern Illinois University who discovered the footage by accident. Yeah, so this is some of the stuff that was found earlier in the year, same footage. The North Carolina, this must be the episode for shipwrecks, because North Carolina had a shipwreck. I thought that was about the monitor they were talking. So mis- mysterious shipwreck discovered off North Carolina coast. It says, in deep waters, hundreds of miles off North Carolina coast, scientists have discovered debris from an unknown shipwreck that could have sunk around the time of the American Revolution. Marine scientists from Duke University, North Carolina State University, University of Oregon, stumbled upon the shipwreck on July 12th during a research expedition aboard, aboard the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution's research ship Atlantis. This is an excellent find and a vivid reminder that even with major advances in our ability to access and explore the oceans, the deep sea holds its secrets close. This according to leader Cindy Vandover, director of Duke University Marine Laboratory. She said that she had led four previous expeditions as early as 2012 to the same site about a mile deep and had no idea the wreckage was there. It's ironic to think we're exploring within 100 meters of the wreck site without an inkling it was there. An iron chain, a pile of wood chip timbers, red bricks, glass bottles, an unglazed pottery jug, a metal compass, a navigational instrument, possibly a sex center among the artifacts discovered in the shipwreck's broken remains. Scientists didn't set out to find a shipwreck, but an expedition focused on exploring the ecology of the deep-sea methane seeps along the eastern coast. Our accidental find illustrates the rewards and challenges and uncertainty of working in the deep ocean. Vandover said, we discovered the shipwreck by... But ironically, the lost mooring was never found. So they were actually searching for a mooring. They said the find is exciting but not unexpected. Violent storm sent down a large number of vessels off Carolina coast, but few have been located because of difficulties in depth and working in an offshore environment. 5,000 feet is a little further than we're going to be playing at. Yeah, it, uh, deco time's longer than I'm willing to take. But some uh, nice images. Amazing what you can do with a few billion dollars. Yeah. And then you were talking, and we didn't—I didn't have it on our show notes, but uh, they drained the tank that the monitor turret was in. Yes, I saw the pictures of it. So there were some photos of that turret. Yeah. Now they supposed to—was that a temporary draining? Are they going to fill it back up again? Or I'm, I'm not real sure because I couldn't figure out why they had all the looked like supporting structure from the inside. I, I'm just curious what what are they going to do with it, and is it that significant that they're spending this much money on it? I think it's, as far as an object, it's very, not necessarily even unique, but identifiable. When you think of the monitor, that's what you think of as a turret. I think of the picture. I don't think of that piece of metal sitting there. Well, not necessarily. It'd be nice to have the whole thing, but that's what you, that's really what you think of. In the, and it's mostly wood carvings or etchings of it that we see. And as I probably talked about in the show, I had a relative who was on there. Not when it went down, but he, he served on the vessel. That's still got to be pretty awesome, though. Oh, it's cool. I'd, I'd love to do it. Heck, if I if I had a place and I'd get money, I would certainly uh, bring it up and try and restore it. And then we have a shipwreck has been discovered in the bottom of Pictou Harbor. This is in Canada. 
Now, this, is it really in Canada, Nova Scotia, or where? I, I hear the name, but I don't know exactly where that is. It says the Canadian Hydraulic Services is a large shipwreck in Pecto Harbor. He says, I can't believe it when I saw the image. It's sitting straight up. This is Robert McKay of a sonar-generated 3D image of the mystery wreck. To positively identify it, you need to find the bell first. Uh, Jonathan Griffin was in a temporary office set up in the Customs House Inn on Picto Harbor in the front Wednesday looking at a blue-green image of the shipwreck discovered accidentally by his team. I can't tell you what it is, said the engineering project supervisor from the Canadian Hydrographic Service when asked what kind of ship it is. Looks like it's literally hit the edge of the channels it came in. Griffin's team was using acoustic sonar technology to map the bottom and entrances to Picto Harbor when they recently discovered approximately a 59-meter-long ship on the edge of a channel about one and a half kilometers south of the Picto waterfront. So far, no one has dived on it, and no one has been able to confirm the name of the boat. A search of the Maritime Museum and Atlantic database showed 17 shipwrecks have occurred in Picto Harbor between 1874 and 1973. A vast majority were schooners significantly smaller than the wreck discovered by Griffin's team. However, one ship, the Diezo, Diezo, Dies, D-I-E-U-Z-E, which has too many vowels to be real, matches the dimensions of the wreck fairly exactly. According to New Mills List, Canadian Coastal and Inland Steam Vessels, 1809 to 1930, the Dyes was 59.5 meters long and 12.5 meters wide. The wind steamer owned at the time by Wentworth McDonald of of Amherst burned and sank in Picto Harbor in September 25, 1925, while carrying a load of pulpwood. That would be along the right time for the amount of sediment built up, as you can see, formed around the hull. The sonar image of the ship shows no remaining superstructure. A bit of research shows that, while brief, its career was colorful. Two years before it burned, it was contracted by Labrador Goldfields Limited to participate, which turned out to be one of the country's great mining hoaxes. During the early 1920s, Henry Bellows acquired rights to the area around Stag Bay and Labrador for cutting timber, but upon arriving there, discovered his purchase had little timber value. He claimed he discovered a huge gold deposit, sold shares for $250 apiece, with the stated aim of raising $25 million to bring 5,000 men to the isolated, unpopulated area of Labrador. It was one of the ships contracted by Bellows in 1923 to carry men and equipment north. We have had private information that confirms our impression that the gold find is a barefaced hoax, read an editorial in 1923 edition of the Canadian Mining Journal referred to Bellows' claims. This cannot be proved def- definitively, however, until an examination by a competent person is made of the re- reputed goal, uh, pay gravel. It turned out to be correct. No expedition was ever made to Stag Bay, and two years later, the ship burned in Picto Harbor. But there's no way to know what ship it is until you have the bell, cautions McKay, who has dive shipwrecks around Nova Scotia and, points and plans a dive on this latest find. He says the wreck is not a hazard of marine navigation due to its location outside the channel. That's interesting. I was looking at the other ones who actually had some better pictures. Uh, that was in Nova Scotia. That's where it's at. I was curious about that. It said on its day it was an ark, and that was set of the diver Robert McKay of Caribou County there. And what I thought was interesting looking at that side scan, mm-hmm. they measured it, and it's 20, 60 meters long. Here's the key item. The bow is under about 12 meters of water. That's all. 36 feet. The stern is in 9 meters. Oh, wow. Now, from that picture, you would not have a clue how deep it is. You have no idea because that's just uh, it's like a naked scan 
Yeah. So it would be it, how would you not? It seems like be able to would, do whatever they're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like fishermen would be all over this location. He said the aspect of the wreck that he was most excited about were two propellers. You could not put one of those propellers in the dump truck. They're that big. You don't get a wooden ship, 120 years old, sitting upright with both anchors down in a shallow harbor in Canada. You just don't get that. Yeah, you do. So this is interesting. It's, yeah. You read more than one report and you get a different skew on it. Well, here's the thing. If you have it in harbor with anchors down, it either burned and sank right where it burned or it was parked there and scuttled. Yes. And that is freak. That frequently happens with old vessels because I don't want to have to deal with it. But you don't normally leave the anchors on them in the chain because that's money, oh, and that's you can true. take the props off because that's always money there. That's true. That's unless you're trying to unless you're trying to make it seem like it went down accidentally. That's correct. We have some barges out there in the big lake like that. I think. <laughs> yeah, a few of them. <laughs> but I bet you there's less on it than what would normally have been on it. Yeah, like nothing. <laughs> Two shipwrecks, historic pier discovered near Northport. This one's out of Leelanau County, which is in Michigan. Piece of history is discovered in calm waters in North Point Harbor. Archaeologists say they discovered two shipwrecks and substantial remains of historic pier underwater in Leelanau County. Discovery is made by a team of international studies attending the Nautical Academy Society International Field School, which I think some of our MUD Club members have talked about participating in that program. Yes, uh, I agree with you. <laughs> The school is held each summer on the campus of Northwestern Michigan College. A team has been diving and investigating shipwrecks since they were found early this week. Discoveries were made while field testing a new Lawrence side-scanning unit, which is purchased by funds from the NMC BBQ board. Is that a restaurant? (laughs) (laughs) It's it's making me hungry. Archaeologists say the shipwrecks were believed to be the remains of the Eagle and the Fiora, F-I-O-R-A. The boats were small commercial fishing tugs that were used around the Grand Traverse Bay using advanced equipment and scuba uh, equipment. The field school students have been studying and mapping the remnants of the underwater of Lake Michigan. Northwestern Michigan College is one of the only schools in the United States that provides this specialized scientific training in the NAS program, which is true because we've researched into it. I like that photo. That's a nice. Wow, and that's shallow. Do you see that? The third picture? Yeah. How de- this, this is like a shoreline dive. Does our does our buddy Kevin have this on his list? I, if he doesn't, I'll be very surprised because this is right up his alley. Oh, this is right where he's at. Right it's in, and for those who don't know, Kevin has done an amazing job of documenting snorkelable wrecks. Yeah. If you, Shallow if you, water wrecks on shore or by shore. Yeah. We just need to get the water cleaner in Lake Michigan so that you could dive them all the time. So good for them. Let's see. We've got some more here. This is the shipwreck episode. And they said a shipwreck in Ludington shallows, possibly a Saugatuck schooner. Sometimes you wonder if these are overlapping, but they all seem to appear to be unique discoveries or finds. Mm-hmm. Wow, this one looks a little bit like your wreck, Mac. Mac's wreck. A wooden hulk showing in the shallows of Lake Michigan near Ludington is no surprise to one Michigan official. So this shape could be clearly distinguished on Wednesday, July 29th in the shallows of Nordhouse Dunes Wildlife Area north of Ludington, roughly a mile's walk from the Nuremberg Road parking area. About 10 years ago, I visited a shipwreck then on shorelines north of Ludington. This is Wayne Lasardi, which we've talked about before. He said this in a written statement on Wednesday, the higher lake levels over the last year, I suspect that the same wreck is now inundated in the very shallow water near shore. 
doesn't look that shallow in these photos, does it? Well, I'm looking at it on a different site, and I'm standing on shore in my ankle dip, ankle. I'm looking straight up, and you can see the perfect outline of the boat. Oh, yeah, you can see it. You're, you're talking a couple of feet at most. Well, and water's higher now, so if you, it shouldn't like you'd have had better pictures a few years ago, unless yeah, it was buried bow, in sand. Bow would have been, the bow would have been uncovered. Uh, there was another picture, and I can't remember who it was. It was taken by Chicago helicopter the other day. Mm-hmm. And perfect outline of a wreck. It's in twelve foot of water. Yeah, well, which we have a lot of them. Wreck, but still a wreck. Yeah, well, it, it wrecked. It didn't make it to where it was meant to go. Yeah, and a lot of times these are just older ships. Like if you imagine the semis going down the road, that was the ships of those times. Yep. And when they got to the end of their life, it wasn't worth dealing with when they went up on shore and everybody survived you just pulled the rest of the gear off and you just let it go yeah uh, and then sometimes they'd be salvaged and renamed sometimes they didn't and that what makes it a challenge for us to identify wrecks most of these schooners were rigged with two masts and carry about 150 tons of cargo principally lumber grain salt or coal and are managed with a crew of four or five lasardi said much of the fleet operating in or around ludington was involved in carrying lumber from chicago from ports in western michigan Jim Fay, a self-described nautical nut and board member of the Mason County Historical Society, said he planned to visit the site this week to take measurements of the wreck. We can narrow it down to a few ships, I think Fay said. The work is difficult because many ships were lost in the water near Big Sable Point. To treacherous area, there are a lot of sandbars. The shipwreck recently seen in shadows can, could be one of the many schooners lost in the area. One example is the Lizzie Dulk, which ran aground there in 1892, but Lasardi said he could prove it to be the George F. Foster, which was built by Jacob Randall in 1852, at present-day Sogtuck, then called Newark. I have, I have never heard Sogtuck called Newark. Nope, neither have I. No. Well, and the thing, and the reason these towns have multiple names is is a lot of times you had docks like Sogatuck was, Sogatuck I know it's had at least three names. Singapore was one of them, Sogatuck, and frequently they were distinct parts of the town. It wasn't until you had a an official governing body where they would get a name, but he's saying it was called Newark. Foster was 93.6 feet long, 21.5 feet wide, and measured 123 tons. Bound from Grand Haven to Chicago with a load of lumber, the schooner was blown off course by an autumn gale and wrecked in October 1872. Lasardi wrote, the Foster's claim, class, dimensions, and locations correspond favorably with archaeological remains located near London, Ludington. Wow. Well, further research is required to make a positive identification. Visitors are welcome to look the wreck, but are asked not to dig on it or otherwise disturb the site. The wreck is likely to be reburied naturally, as it has been covered and uncovered many times already. So they're saying don't touch it, because the mysteries of the universe are contained with it if we just let it sit a little longer. Yeah. Well, how about you like to be the Schmidt family? Only if you like gold. <laughs> yeah. Ah, gold's overrated. But, man, that had to have been a great discovery. They've been diving for quite a while, by the sounds of it, down in Florida, where they seem to have a lot of these little golden wrecks. Well, I wouldn't mind being down there to be able to look a little bit. Yeah, just a, just a little. I mean, just one coin of the 51 would have been nice. But if it's a fine to 51 coins, well, that's about 51, 56,000 maybe dollars of money there, unless you're talking numistic value. Where'd the other $950,000 come from? You said $9,000 to $50,000? Well, it said more than a million dollars worth of gold artifacts. Include 51 coins. Well, a gold coin, if it's one ounce, about $1,100 today, not counting numistic value, you know, of age. So 
that's only fifty thousand dollars plus and you're talking one million to what well what else did he find well it says he found 52 gold coins mm-hmm. 40 feet of gold chain 40 feet it says 40 uh, this according to national geographic 40 feet of gold chain 110 silver coins and buttons and the estimated value of the total haul is over one million dollars okay 40 feet of chain i wonder how much how big of the chain you know is it like necklace chain or chain chain i'm picturing it being necklace chain just as a way of hauling it because coins would be minted just to be able to account for it plus i think you want to because a lot of these were which nobody wants to admit to stolen from the indigenous people in the area i'm sure they're gonna give it back to them though yeah of course so what you want to do is you want to change its form into something else plus when it gets the shore you're able to show the value so you know instead of having all these cups and crowns and whatever shapes you know indigenous people might want which would seem silly to conquering nation uh, you melt it down the coins which is easy to transport onto a vessel and to keep an eye on because you don't want your crew to to go and steal your gold yeah. so they you know they put it down and maybe chain is one way i haven't i don't know if that specific was a way they transported it but here in this article they're talking about gold chain discovery was made on june 17th it was kept under wraps until now the family made discovery led by eric schmidt wanted to wait so the announcement coincide with 300 year anniversary of the fleet sinking off the coast of florida 11 ships were part of spain's terra firm and new spain fleets regularly convoys of vessels that transported gold, silver, and other precious resources from Spanish colonies to the world uh, in the New World to Europe. The fleet serviced so- South and Central America, according to Jennifer McKinnon, a marine archaeologist in East Carolina University. In an interview earlier this year, she was not involved in the current find. The fleet was vital to the flow of materials back to Spain, as well as provisioning the New World with Old World goods. The ship sank during a hurricane that hit them on July 30th and 31st in 1715 as they sailed past Florida on their way back to Spain. Schmidt and his family have been working the 1715 vessel under contract with the 1715 Fleet Jewels, Queen's Jewels LLC, which is a Florida company with exclusive rights to the wrecks, for several years. Usually Schmidt and his team come up empty-handed. Typically we, evac- we evacuate empty holes and find beer cans. according to the shipwreck diver but this time in 15 feet four and a half meters of water about a thousand feet or 305 meters off the beach in fort pierce florida the divers got lucky that's not far off the beach no so you'd have to be sucking that down because you you figure that if if things would be buried pretty well does they start out like any other but around 9 or 9 30 in the morning a gold coin popped up out of the sand he was clearing on the seafloor the dive team started to shift more sand ended up receiving recovering the treasure it was absolutely unreal, says Schmidt. He called Brent Bisbin, a co-founder of the 1715 Fleet Queen's Jewels, to check out their discovery. I was blown away, Brisbane says. I was literally shaking. Brisbane and his company's contractors have been working the wreck since 2010, but the current find is probably the biggest in terms of volume and rarity. The gold coins include extremely rare specimen called the Tricentennial Royal, which is worth over $500,000. Wow. So... Could an individual coin be worth that much? Individual coin? I can't believe that. No, because it... By weight, I mean, it, it really have to be rare. And if you had, like, diamonds and or jewels, emeralds, and like that on a brooch, I can imagine it could go really, yeah. you know, up there. Like my dad said, find somebody to buy it. <laughs> That's how you find out how much yeah, it's yeah. worth. It's worth what you can get somebody, yeah, 
to pay for it. Regular coins in those days tended to look a little bit rougher, Brisbane said. Their markers were more concerned about the coin's weight and quality of the gold or silver, but they made a certain number of coins perfect called royals, which would be presented to the king. So that's what they're saying is this is a tricentennial royal, which would be a little bit higher quality. Schmidt and his team have continued to work on a site that yielded million-dollar haul. They found some more silver coins and buttons and several candlesticks since then, but nothing like this initial find. All the nautic all the artifacts under jurisdiction, the United States District Court of the Southern District of Florida, under care of Brisbane's company, the state of Florida is entitled 20% of anything Brisbane or its contractors find. Every year, Florida will send a representative to examine anything the teams find, put a request for the items that they like transferred to museum to the court. If the court agrees, the company turns the items over. With the current find, after the state takes its share, Brisbane and, and the Schmidt family will split the rest evenly. Well, hopefully you get a little bit. Of it. I found the picture of the uh, polished coins and the uh, chain. That's very ornate chain. It looks to be about as round as my little finger. Very, very, very nice. Yeah, I'm looking at this photo that they've got here, and some of the chains in individual strands, and there's a few that seem to be braided like four strands wide. Yeah, that must be what I'm looking at because, oh, nope, I see that off to the side. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's pretty cool there. Almost like you could make a bracelet out of it. You could. And that's, how would you make something like that? Gold chain amazes me. But you look at the royal and you can see the difference. If you look at the other coins, they're kind of squished like there was just some sort of form. And uh, gosh, I was watching something on another show and they and some of these look familiar to that. But that one royal is like really round. I wonder yeah. if that's like the beginning, like the very first one. You know, they get this big bubbling pot of gold. And the first one they make really nice, and the rest of them they just ah, crank them out. Yeah, I don't know, but uh, I think they used to try to go by weight also. Yeah, well, you have to, I mean, weight's, the, like they said, the important thing. Because it's really a unit of measure. You you boil down these cups and chalices and crowns, and you end up with some coins. Yeah, but that kind of stuff is what you would melt, chalice and things like that, because then they're worth more for the value of the object and the intrinsic. Oh, I'm yeah, to, to, today it would be, but back then yeah, they, didn't, that's true. they didn't care. No, everybody had. Yeah. If you can't, you can't fit in a boat, what good is it? Yeah. So they loaded these vessels up. So a good find for them. Boy, I'd love but to. They worked for it. Oh yeah. Years, years. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of days. So you figure if you have a family, you know, they're, they're probably, you could make a, you could be a manager of a chicken restaurant and probably end up making more money than, than they had. Yeah. But you get to play in the water, wear dive gear. And then deep in Lake Michigan, divers have found a pristine shipwreck lost in 1899. So this was found by our friends, the MSRA, uh, Craig Rich, who's been on the show, the Van Hees, uh, David Trotter, and they found the John V. Morgan. Now, you have seen the video of that taken by Submersible, correct? Yes, that was some nice video. Very, very nice. I've never seen one that still had the pilot house on it that didn't blow off when it sank. Yeah, because for those who don't know, the pilot houses were designed to come off. So if the ship sunk and you were in the pilot house, you, you hopefully you the, it blew off and you were with the pilot house. But this one, uh, was this one, did they say that this one sank in the ice? No, they did not. And I don't see how it could have because looking at the pictures, the foul like, pictures, the, the, everything, it's just like in pristine shape. If you brought that sucker up, it looked like it would it would float. Yeah, and some of the photos of it. If you look at the photos that they have of it when it was still floating, and then it in the bottom, you can see it's the same vessel, or at mm-hmm. least one made from the same plans. 
It had flour on board, 9,550 barrels of it, and it was a brand destined for Amsterdam. At some point in the voyage, ice punctured a hole in the hull and the ship began to flood. The water began to overwhelm the pumps. Captain John McLeod, fearing a boiler explosion, ordered the crew into 24 of the crew of 24 in the lifeboats. Thankfully, the crew, the Morin had been placed had been paced across the lake by her sister steamer Naomi, which heard the distress whistle. The ship pulled alongside her at 12:30 a.m. on Friday, February 10th. Took the stricken vessel crew aboard in negative 30 degree weather. The Naomi tried for several hours to tow the ship, which was sinking by the stern. When that proved to be futile, futile, everything of value was stripped, the cargo was transferred and thrown overboard, and the Morgan was abandoned to her fate. Because the sinking occurred along a heavily trafficked route, several other ships passed by the Moran as it slowly settled in the water. The last confirmed sighting happened a couple of days later on Sunday afternoon when the passing rail car ferry reported the ship still afloat. Ship's owners tried them on a rescue mission, but equipment failure on the dock in Milwaukee delayed the expedition cold and alone the Moran slid under the ice not to be seen for more than a century. So it sounds like it it punctured a hole, and then if you load everything off, it's probably almost neutrally buoyant on its own. Did they actually dive it, or did they send down a submersible? Cause I don't think they I dove understand. it. Yet. They say they inferred they dove it, and that's why I was curious about that. I haven't heard that they have dove it. Uh, I was asking people before it was announced, and nobody was sure. And they weren't sure when they were going to announce it. I think they were trying to to find it to, just to verify a little bit more of the identity. I know they said the Michigan State Police Underwater Recovery Unit, which owns a remotely operated submersible, can operate at depth for hours. A scuba diver would be limited to 15 to 18 minutes. And I thought that was excessive, but you've got to be talking gas stuff. But how did they get the Michigan State Police Recovery Unit to do that? I, I'm curious, at the state unit doing private work? Well, they're a charity. And if you call, I, I bet you if we were in a similar situation, we could pull some strings. I've got some contacts. You could go, hey, bring that over. You know, it's some good publicity. Uh, so it's a matter of who you know, not because you need it. Well, they didn't necessarily need it, but it is kind of deep for a diver. They do have some tech divers that have done this, but I don't think they as an organization have done a dive on a wreck this deep. And maybe they wanted to see. I would, heck, if I was a deep diver and I saw the condition of this wreck, you bet I'm I'm doing my dive plan to get on it. To be the first one on this wreck? <laughs> I mean, even look at that side scan. The shadow of the side scan looks like a wreck. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. So congratulations to MSRA and the find. Um, and they've gotten some good publicity. I've been watching for the last couple of weeks since they announced it. And it has been picked up on major networks. And let's see. Uh, well, let's go ahead and continue. So we've got some photos of the week. That's some. If uh, people haven't got that link, they ought to. Uh, submersible photos of that submarine is awesome. That first shot when you get onto it. Yeah, this is something. Yeah, this is from uh, weather.com, which is the Weather Channel's website. And they have some things which aren't quite weather, but they must have some, they must pay their staffers really good because they, they can put together some stuff in those photos. So it's the, the one you're talking about is a wreck of U boat. U-166 off Louisiana, and just some beautiful high-resolution photos. And you look at the, the, to get a photo of the ROV means you have another ROV. So they, there's some money and time spent. And then the sand must be right up to the side of this sub, wouldn't you say? Yeah. 
because you look at that second photo and it's even. But just the detail. They got the cables of the rails. You've got the deck gun. You got the conning tower. Yeah, that series of pictures alone is worth looking at. Beautiful. Hi, uh, those those would win you if if you were a photographer and you took those, they would win you a contest right there. They've got yeah, they have, yeah, they have some good light for that. And they did, and they had a good lens and probably a few hours of Photoshop along with it. Yeah. Well. And nobody's on the bottom mucking it up either. Yeah, they didn't get us there. We know how to properly muck up a wreck. Yeah. We and then they've, then they've got a couple wrecks from uh, Thunder Bay. Yep. Now, one's a classic where you got the propeller sitting there in the sand. Yep, that's a shallow water one. Yeah, the Mono Handset. Yep. And the Monrovia, which is also in Thunder Bay. It's a beautiful one where you're looking through the... It just looks like some of these just sat down on the bottom. If you didn't have the quaggas out there, it'd be really, really nice. Oh, yeah. Of course, we wouldn't have the conditions. We'd have visibility. It'd be about four inches. Yeah. Well, you know, did you see the, Von, the I think it's Valkenberg? That's the one after the propeller one? Uh, let me go back. Divers at the nose of the ship taking some pictures? Oh, yes. The that's Max Rack if you took the sand off. Yeah. Yeah, I believe. Yeah, you're right, because that's about as much sand. So you see that side. You can see this. You can see the center board there, and you can see the other side. Yeah, you're right, except they're missing the anchor. You have to have the anchor. Yeah, but it'd be interesting what's in that when you take the sand out. Oh, I know. We got. Hopefully we'll do that. That will be a Maybe that will be a fundraiser project for next year. Well, I don't think Jim had that scheduled for a Sunday dive. Well, for going out there, and God, I can't wait to tell everybody about the diving we've been doing, but if what we've been seeing so far is any indication – Max Rec has got to be exposed like never before. And if not, then it shows that north of the pier and the south of the pier are two different environments. Well, I just, matter of fact, Mr. Jensen, you know who I'm talking about? Yeah. He gave me a call the other day. Mm-hmm. He's got a new uh, side scan yeah. for the LT. Yeah. Uh-oh. He's got a Lorance. He is talking about how uh, really nice the pictures are. <laughs> and he was giving me a call about the uh, Havana Bee. Yeah. And wanting to know how valid that verbiage he's been hearing is. I said, come on down and try out your new scanner. Yeah. Uh, We're almost ready to get to that point. So let's uh, take a look at the videos. And and I've got four videos. I didn't send them all to you. These will all be in the show notes that we're seeing. One of the videos is a scuba dive in a Titan One nuclear missile silo. And that was a beautiful dive. And I've seen videos of the out-of-water portions before, but this is the first time I'd seen the in-water portions. And you can dive that. Uh, there's also another one, the Comanche Shipwreck in Pentwater, Michigan. That was a nice dive. And if you want to see how to do a dive, how to do a video of a wreck that you've dove on, uh, the diver who did that one did an excellent job. Uh, we also have MSRA's ROV video, the John V. Moran shipwreck. Absolutely must see. Again, it will be in the show notes, www.scubaobsessed.com. And then the overall one for this week, which is the huge gooey glob that is in the water. This one's out of, uh, it was shown on a variety of sites, including Smithsonian Magazine. Did you see that one, Mac? No, I did not. It is eerie. And, you know, they say that you, you know, who has to make stuff up when there's things like this? There is this gelatinous ball, which looks to be almost 15, 20 feet in diameter, nearly perfectly transparent, and it's one solid glob. And when the divers are shining their lights through it, you can kind of see a little particulate suspended. And what scientists are saying is it could be a clutch of squid eggs. So they're saying that maybe this is the eggs of a giant squid, and this is just how it 
how it forms. They don't know, but a unique video. And then for some cool scuba gear, and this will have to cover Mac. Do, do you have the one that, that has the hornster? I think any time you can do something with a can, a can, a cylinder of compressed diving gas and use it for this purposes, I'm all for it. So what they've done, and this one's from a couple of years ago, the hornster, they took and made a bicycle horn, uh, powered it with a 80, cubic, a 80 cubic foot cylinder tank. And they're saying that it is the loudest horn known to exist. A stunning 178 decibels says louder than a uh, truck horn. And, that uh, should work underwater for a recall system. There you go. I said, if you'd like, they'll build you one. Eight thousand seventy-four U.S. dollars or uh, five thousand pounds. I think you would have to have a special insurance policy for that. Because what would happen if you? I would have a heart attack if somebody came behind me in a bicycle and blew that. I think I, I it'd be over. <laughs> and then this next one. Do you have the robot hands? I see it. Let's take a look at the robot hands. This one's also from National Geographic. Yeah. Well, not giving me pictures, though. No pictures? No. Oh, you, well, yeah, usually. Uh, so what they're basically the gist of it is that they're working on a special hand that would work. Uh, this is it. You're not seeing it in the, if you go. No, I went to a different, I went to a different okay. item. You're talking about on a robotic suit. Yeah. The articulated hand that comes out. Yeah. Cause, and that's been some of the complaint is that if you put the hands to the glove and you're doing a one atmosphere suit, the pressure in the suit is so great that the hands are almost not, you can't move them. You know, all your joints are bound because of the pressure and it's just hard to get anything done. It's very fatiguing. So what they're doing is they're doing almost like uh, if you were on a space mission and you were inside a vessel uh, where the where you've got the glove and you're in the the glove and you're moving actuators, which then move a hand that's only four or five inches outside of your hand, but it's in the water. So you're you're able to get the power. And this is being developed by holy mackerel! Every episode a name, uh, Bahargav Gajar of Vishwa Robotics in the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, with funding from the Office of Naval Research, is conducting research in the deep-sea anthropomorphic manipulators in in an effort to lend a hand to deep-sea work. Currently, he works with a three-fingered hand called the Vishwa Extensor. Given the extreme pressure mobility requirements, the teleoperated hand is developed for marine environments to to be better than biology. Hmm. And it shows them doing all sorts of tests with it. Not quite not quite that deep. So interesting. Doesn't really apply to us in our shallow diving, for the most part. And then this next one, do you have the underwater drone one? No, I was trying to look at that again. I have no pictures. Yeah, you, must, you, you turn off the pictures on your computer? Not on purpose. <laughs> There's a bunch of pictures. So what it is, is an underwater drone that they're saying could be a scuba diver's best ally in harsh environments. It's, it's being designed as an autonomous surface vehicle, according to the international team of researchers in charge of CADDY, C-A-D-D-Y, which is the communications relay link to command center, but at the same time also plays a key role in navigation aid to underwater vehicles. The underwater robot has three main functions to, to ensure safe and carefree diving experience. One is the guide the diver, continuously modest, monitor his body language in search of signs of distress and assist his work through an automated camera and torchlight. So uh, one of the groups who's sponsoring this is 
Dan, the Divers Alert Network of Europe, they're actually backing some of this research. And CADI stands for the Cognitive Autonomous Diving Buddy. So what you do is they have a surface component that floats on the surface, which I guess could have a flag, but they're using it to communicate down to a vehicle that's down below. And then they're they're taking measurements. And if you look at the video, uh, they're doing all sorts of advanced analysis of the images. Presumably, you need to have clear. You need to have some good vis so it can see, but it can tell which direction you're heading. Uh, it can read hand signals that it's designed to read. Uh, and it can also detect when you're having problems. Uh, I finally got one of the pictures. And one looks like an instrument panel that has the, your normal information on it. Is that the one you're, you're talking about? Is the well, if, if Yeah, it's, it's actually a collection of systems. If you get a chance, and I'd recommend doing it later on and you watch the video, they've They've got about 10 or 15 different devices that they've tested. So it's it's more of an approach than a specific product at this point, but okay. very early on. But the idea is to come up with a system. So for, for us who maybe have been known to be occasional solo divers, it would be like having a dive buddy. Because one of the most important things is being able to communicate when there's a problem. Yep. So that does it for oh oh wait I uh, here's the news section and maybe this is something that we uh, we add to the regular episode not quite scuba diving Let's see what did I call it in the show notes may sound crazy may sound crazy that sounds about right yeah so what they're doing is this is out of the upper peninsula of Michigan Lake Superior is, and there's an idea that Manoa visitors nine thousand years ago. And it says, recently come to light that a spot in the Tennessee Valley was smelting a location for Lake Superior Copper and Wisconsin Copper. It was dug by an archaeologist in the 1930s before flooding as a result of dam building produced thousands of artifacts. More interesting are the molds that were used to form the copper ingots. These same copper ingots appear to have been found in ancient shipwrecks in the northeast coast of Africa. They match the size and shape of the copper molds unearthed in the Tennessee Valley. The shape of these molds and copper ingots are called oxide and bun-shaped. The first shape resembles that of an animal skin. The other, a round shape. The copper ingots were unearthed at the dig site as well. The shipwreck and dig sites are thousands of years old. Lake Superior native copper connection to the island of Crete. And this is where the author is saying maybe it's not that crazy. They said copper can contain small amounts of arsenic, early natives, place native copper nuggets in the fire and place the heated nuggets in water and food. As a result, they sickened and died of arsenic poisoning. When lab technicians put his reputation in line and speaks on camera that the copper ingot he found in the ancient Minoan shipwreck is the exact match to Lake Superior copper, you take notice. Much of North American's history would need to be rewritten. An example that Christopher Cumbus was the first to reach North America has been discounted for some time now. It isn't a far leap to link the Manoa find to the trade or direct contact with early paleo people who mined copper in Lake Superior 9,000 years ago. A lab result confirmed it. Egyptians and even so the Minoans, the island of Crete in the Mediterranean, produced a large amount of bronze made from copper and tin. The part of the world has little in way of copper, so where did it come from? Paleo people mined copper and superior 9,000 years ago, taking estimated 1 million pounds or more. That's much more than what they could have used for spearheads alone. The ancient copper pits are found inland, and it was at that time the shoreline of Lake Superior. It's interesting when you consider that 10,000 years ago we had ice age here. True. 
Or is this, a thousand or is years after the Ice Age, what did that place look like? Yeah. So what he's saying is that that's probably, you know, were water levels changing? Well, and also I've seen stuff where they said that uh, the land was compressed because of the Ice Age. Huh. You, know, you have to have a – and we're always good at underestimating what our ancestors did. They're just as motivated as we are now. We've got businesses that are worth billions of dollars and will go to the ends of the earth to remain profitable. The same thing with trade routes and in need. If your you know, military then is just important as now in survival. So if you need bronze, you would create a network and fund it to get it. And it could include going to a secret location where you've got these – you just think of the logistics that's involved, and it's pretty impressive. Yeah. And who knows? We may never know, but it's a interesting possibility. Yeah. This is a quick side note also. If you go to that caddy we were talking about earlier, yep. they've got a website. It's called Caddy7, mm-hmm. FP7 Project. It's a little interesting. It has more pictures and other items. Yeah, I joined their Facebook page just to kind of keep up on it as well. Uh, and um, so that does it. We have knocked it out of Scuba News, and that means we get to talk about some diving. Now, Mac, I understand that you haven't been in the water in a little bit. That is correct. So the nice guy I am, I've been your dive proxy. I, I actually took your place and got in the water. <coughs> well, I appreciate that immensely. <laughs> And we have had a number of boats going. And if you've been following the Mud Club or some other things, you've been hearing some indications of an object called the Havana Bee. And I kind of wish Jim was here to talk about it, so he, he really deserves credit in it. And what this came from is that we've had some, you know, it's not so much discovering new wrecks as rediscovering wrecks that had been there. And with Loran and some other technologies, we had people who dove wrecks and the Havana, which is probably one of the most common wrecks that we've got that you dive out of St. Joe, uh, there has been many people who have their own sets of numbers. And the Havana, depending on how you, you dive on it, it could look and be a little bit different. But for the most part, I considered Havana not just a one dive trip dive, but a one tank dive. If even a new person on the wreck, you get your tank out, you go down and dive, and there's not a whole heck of a lot to see. Every year we get a few more boards and a few other boards are covered up and the sand moves around, but there's not much. And somebody was looking and, from what I understand, was diving Carl Harris's old numbers and saw something that looked completely different. And we're still trying to figure out if it's another wreck or the same wreck. And I had a chance to dive it this last weekend, and I definitely have not dove on this before. Um We've done some measurements, and it appears to be longer than what the Havana is supposed to be. But I, I still want to remeasure a few times. It's hard. Visibility was bad. Uh, we did the dive on Sunday. Uh, water temperatures was about 52 at the bottom. A really strong thermocline, about 20, 30 feet down. The wreck's about 50 feet deep. And there, there's some mooring, and we... I my first dive I went one way around the wreck and I was seeing boards that were so tight it looked like if you brought it up you could float it you could not fit paper between these boards um a lot of metal I mean there's a lot of metal reinforcing like I would call them almost early rivets attaching the uh the hull to the knees and other parts of the wreck and then on the second dive I was able to go and get back and see the stern 
and the stern looks like it's collapsed a little bit, but there's a lot exposed. We had some uh, new divers on the wreck. Uh, one of the youngest divers to be affiliated with the Mud Club. I, well, I think he's 17. He came out and dove with us. We had Kevin out. We had Bob. We had Kirk, Jim, uh, Mary Beth. I'm not going to feel bad. I'm leaving. I, I can't remember the name of the, the young diver. Do you know Mac? No, but I do know he was at the dive meeting. So when I say Mike, is that his, his name? His uh, last last week. Oh, goodness. I'll, to, I'll I apologize to him. We'll, we'll mention him next week. But, yeah, his dad was there. Uh, he dove with Jim the first time, and then he buddied up with me the second time, and a really good diver. He's uh, coming along nicely, you know, less than a dozen dives, and, you know, he's got his buoyancy. Uh, he didn't seem to mind the low vis. We did, we, we did some drills playing around with reels. Uh, now, uh, Jim, uh, Mary Beth, and the other diver all saw – uh, dead eyes. I didn't get. You. I didn't see the dead eyes. I, was, I must have been looking at everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, there seems to be a ballast, which is consistent with the ballast that was on the Havana. Looks to be like an ore type of ballast or load. So we're still trying to figure out the Havana. It's 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 close to the Havana. Well, we do know there were seven sections of different wreckage around it. You normally are diving that one wreck part because. That's where the major buoy was at, and with low vis, once you got off of that, it's like, where am I at? So most people stayed on wreckage so they could find their way back to the anchor line. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is that there was, there had been a mooring on this part of the wreckage in the past. There was. If that first dive there was actually showed the one mm-hmm. rope with the, with the bottle on it, so it had been buoyed. Yep. You saw that, correct? Yeah, I, I saw that, and then... Uh, I saw something that was round. I can't tell if it was a mast or a tree limb. It was it was hard to say. I have a feeling it was a tree limb, only because of the each end seemed to be a little bit more jagged. I don't think you would have had it flare out quite as much as that. But it, I mean, it's about the right size for a mast, mm-hmm. uh, which I guess it could break and swell and do funny things underwater. Uh, but just a huge amounts. I mean, there's been a lot of sand moved off of it. You have some areas of the wreck where there are no mussels on it, and then you have others which uh, have been exposed since the beginning of mussels coming in the lake. You know, you've got the eight, ten inches of mussels on mussels on mussels. Now, have you had a chance to dive on it, Mac? I have not dove it this year, no. Okay. I do know that last year towards the end, you were seeing more again than you had in many, many years. Yeah. But just looking at this, we need to get some more measurements get some better idea, uh, and just document it. Because it doesn't, it doesn't match any of the drawings I've seen at Havana, but if those drawings were made after it was covered up, you, you wouldn't. You know. Correct. And that drawing is not like it used to be in the old days. Like, again, that's one section. There used to be seven. Yeah. What we suggested and I suggest is everybody goes out with a jug, put a number on it or whatever. When you find a significant item, you know where you're at, Put the jug on it. When everybody comes up, you take that master drawing and say, okay, what did you see and where was it? I like that idea. Because you're on the surface, you'll see your number. You'll be able to see the jugs in proximity to each other. Oh, so you're saying run the jugs right to the surface. Oh, hell yeah. You take a, you know, take a line okay. with you with a gallon jug on it. Okay. We did that when we were out there a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And that way I could keep track of where Jim was and where uh, Kevin was oh. and to watch their search patterns. And it's really useful to be able to tell when they came back what they told you because Jim stayed in one section. Kevin was in a different one. 
a couple of times their buoys, they came together. And then when they're on the surface debriefing, it was interesting to hear what perspective they had. And it was not always the same. Well, in it, just in the dive I did, because I went one way, one dive, and one way, the other. And it's quite spread out, just the one piece that I was on. Well, that's what I'm saying. If you put a buoy where you think an end is, somebody puts it to the other end, you don't have to guess how long it is. Yep. You know, you, you have a visual reference on the surface now. But it was fun to see something you hadn't seen before, especially in a wreck that had become so commonplace that yes. you know, if you missed it one season, you're like, ah, I've seen the Havana. I'll catch you next but uh, much, much different. Uh, I, I still would love to see the chain. I haven't seen chain. I did see quite a bit of cable. Now, the first dive, I didn't see any cable because I was on one side of that piece I was on, mm-hmm. and that side didn't have cable. The second dive, it was loaded with cable, so I saw tons of cable. And did you find the dead eye in the cable bunch? I did not find any dead eyes. Okay. Everybody else saw two or three, and I didn't see a single one, and I was looking. Yeah, because that came back last year. It used to not be there again, and bang, there it was again. Yeah, see, I, I, I didn't get on any of the Havana that I've seen before. I was all on these other parts. Well, that cable part you see now, mm-hmm. multiply that by three. That's what it used to be before the sand came up. Okay. So I wonder if we're in a trend. Are we going to have the next two or three years of sand moving out because of the high water? That would be water? nice. That would be nice there. Oh, it would be because you're going to see it, and then we're, we're going, okay, well, if, Say this is a van and we're seeing more parts of it. What is the max wreck going to be like? Yeah. Because I want to say that the first time I dove on it, I saw the most of that wreck that I had ever seen, but there was fresh silt on top. And I'm hoping that this year, the same as north of the pier, that the sand is washed away and we're going to be able to see Decker below. Because mm-hmm. that one feels like if you had the sand away, you've got a, ve- you got a, a vessel sitting upright on the bottom. Oh, yeah. So there are going to be some more dives this weekend. We have divers going out Saturday, divers going out Sunday. I don't think I'm going out. i got to catch up on stuff at home, and then I'm traveling next week for work. Uh, but I, I could be I could be persuaded. Yeah, I'm, I'm not that far out of it. Are you thinking you may be diving this weekend, or are you going to? No, I'm going to be off right now as far as I know for a while. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, right now I see uh, 10 o'clock DNR launch for Sunday. For Max Rack, that's post two. Yeah, so Saturday must be Havana B again. Yeah, because I think uh, Ted's on it, Mark Owen's on it. Yeah. So that would be fun. But Hopefully is- they will take jugs and they will do what I suggested, and I'll give them a good visual reference when they get back on the surface. Yeah, yeah. This is the time. I think we're in the era. The next five years is going to be the years of discovery. Technology is caught up. We've got high lake levels, and people are taking the time to go and look. And what we've seen already announced this year, just in Lake Michigan, it's got to be seven, eight wrecks discovered or rediscovered. And there are more there. I know there's got to be some. Looking forward to it. You guys ought to have a good time out there. Well, we're going to be adding some new stuff to the website, so watch uh, some new features. Also, I'd like to thank everybody who got in the chat room. We had uh, Wheaton Diver, St. Louis Sam, uh, Vanessa, Debutante, uh, and then some another anonymous guest. So thank you for listening. This is episode 250, and I really didn't have anything special. We're going to do something special coming up, but I, I, I have no idea at this point what it would be. But we will do something. Uh, Mud Club is mudclub.scubaobsessed.com. We've got the website, facebook.com forward slash scubaobsessed. And you can follow us on Twitter where we are tweeting underwater stories not usually when we're underwater but just about underwater and that's at scuba obsessed on twitter.com 
you have anything you want to plug, Mac? No, but if you've not got wet yet this year, you got nobody to blame but yourself. Oh, you got to go mean, do it. Like this next week. Come on. Yeah, and uh, the viz isn't really that bad. I was I was surprised. It, it could be worse. Our, our first dive when we came down that line, we all kind of clustered right at yeah because we we had some we had some newer divers and they're not exactly comfortable when the viz gets low, which we're working on. Um, but once you get off that, you know, it wherever an anchor is, and when you come down. Even when you're careful, you can stir it up a little bit, and that's a fine clay there. We're right next to some clay banks and ridges, so that clay gets suspended real easy. You get 15, 20 feet away from that anchor line, and visibility opened up. So at the anchor, uh, it was 2 to 3 feet and then down to 0 at some points, but you get 15, 20 feet down the anchor, and vis opened up 6 to 8 feet, and sometimes maybe a touch better. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's a great time of year. you got to get out there. If not, when you're going to go, find a local dive club, get some dive buddies, get in the water. Did I lose you, Mac? Nope, nope. I'm just listening. Or, or, or something clunking. <laughs> you listen to all these tones and you never know. Yeah. So uh, are you ready for a bad joke? I'm sitting here anxious, anxiously waiting. So I think this one's kind of a re-edit, re-swizzle of an old one. It sounds familiar, but... Who knows? So this is an indication. If you haven't listened to the show and this is the first one you've listened to, this is kind of what you can come to expect from our bad scuba joke of the week. A group of divers had been out all day mowing the lawn in Lake Michigan. They dove on two potential targets and had some interesting leads. None of them were in a hurry to get back to their wives, so on the way back they dropped a couple of lines in the water hoping to catch some dinner. Skipper, the boat, was the only one of them to catch anything, a good-sized uh, salmon, and he was very pleased with himself. From the back of the locker, he produced a bottle of rum, some Cuban cigars, and a pack of cigarettes. Unfortunately, no one had a lighter or matches with them. They attempted to spark with their knives against the tank, even rubbing a couple of sticks together, all to no avail. They're just about to give up when uh, their youngest member jumps up, takes one of his cigarettes, and throws it overboard. Instantly, they're able to light their cigarettes. How? The boat had just become a cigarette lighter. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> bad. That is bad. That is certainly bad. So if you've got any bad jokes, you can send them to us, and we'll give them the proper treatment. So until next week, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. been completed.